Okay, well, we are finishing up 1 John. We've got this week and then one more week. And as we come to the close, here's what John is going to talk about tonight. And this is a letter in the Bible written by a, a pastor named John. And uh, he's writing it to a younger church, a church that's kind of just getting started. And tonight we're going to talk about something that you've all heard about, something that we've all thought about, something that we've all wondered about. We're going to talk about eternal life. And we're going to look at what is eternal life, what, how do you get eternal life, and what's the power of eternal life here and now in, in this life. So that's what we're going to look at. So we're going to go to the chapter 5 in 1 John. I'll put it up here on the screen, or if you have a Bible, you can, um, you can look at it there. And also, if you don't have a Bible, I don't know if I've ever said this, but if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take the one that is in the pew. So here's the beginning of chapter 5. Here it is. Here's what John says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. We'll, we'll come back to that. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So we're going to look at the meaning of eternal life, the way to eternal life, and the power of eternal life. See, the most popular definition when we think of eternal life is heaven. When we think of eternal life, we think of heaven. We think of a place that we go to. That's the most popular idea of what eternal life would be, a place that you go to when you die. And this is the most popular concept of eternal life that we have within the church or that we have within the culture when you hear that idea, eternal life. And when you think about heaven, often the way we think about heaven is something like this. Many of you probably traveled for Thanksgiving or will travel for Christmas and you'll get on a plane and you'll go somewhere, you'll fly somewhere. Or maybe if you're just thinking about vacation or something like along those lines where you Get on a plane, and you're going to go to a destination, a special destination that you're looking forward to. And what is it that you look forward to when you get to that destination? Well, it probably depends. Maybe it's family and friends, or maybe it's the setting. It's You're going to the beach, or a great cabin, or somewhere you're going to go to, or the people that will be there. Maybe it's just the relaxation and the relief from life here. There's, there's something on the other end of that destination that we look forward to. And that's how many times we view heaven or how we view eternal life. It's this place that we'll go to. So life, to use the airplane illustration, is kind of like living in the airport. 
And we're just living in the airport. That's life. You have $12 granola bars and you've got $15 salads and and that's life. You're just kind of in the airport and you're awaiting to go to a certain destination. And so you want to make sure that you've got the right bags and you want to make sure you get your life in order and the right things and the right boarding pass. You could even, to stretch the illustration, look at kind of the different world religions as different airplanes. And you want to make sure you get on the right one and God's the pilot that will take you to the destination and you're looking forward to getting to that destination and God is going to fly you to that destination. So you choose the right plane and you arrive and... Hawaii or some great place, right? That you don't want to get off the plane and go, oh my goodness, it's Kentucky. I mean, you, you're looking forward, maybe, if that's your thing. Um, <laughs> sorry if there's any Kentuckans in here. Um, so you're, you're looking forward to a destination, a place that you will go to. And that's the most popular idea that we have of heaven or that we have of eternal life in general, right? But the problem is, a lot of times we don't even know what that destination actually looks like when you think of heaven. I mean, when you think of heaven, what is it like? What do you think of when you think of heaven? I mean, you probably think of people wearing white, white robes and white flowy gowns. Everyone wears a nightgown. It doesn't matter who you are, man or woman. We all wear white nightgowns that glow. And there's probably some clouds and some light and maybe a harp or your grandma. And that's kind of what we think of when we think of heaven. Like, what actually is heaven? What does it actually look like? What, what actually is this place? We know it's a good place, but what, what is this place? So I was looking on Google Images, and Google Images, I love to look at this because it shows us what the most popular images of, of when we think of a certain idea or certain concept. So here's the most popular image when you put in heaven, and it's steps that go up, right? It's steps. So if you're asking somebody or someone, you're, someone's asking you, hey, tell me about heaven, What's heaven going to be like? Like, well, it's going to be great. You die, and you get there, and there's these steps, and you start walking up the steps. Yes, and then what? That's it. You just walk up the steps forever. It's heaven. This is heaven. It's a giant stairmaster. That's the rest of your life, walking up steps. And it's going to be really bright, so, you know, have some sunglasses, and you might get a sunburn, but that's heaven. And I know that's kind of silly because you probably go, well, I don't think heaven is steps. But what's interesting about this idea is these steps lead up to somewhere, but we don't quite know what's up there. We know it's up. We know it's up and it's good. Like if you die and you're like, okay, I know there's supposed to be steps. Okay, wait, these steps go down. Where's the steps that go up? You're going to be a little concerned. But we know it's up and we know it's a good place, but... Not quite sure exactly what this place is about. What's actually happening in this place? What's actually in this place? We think of eternal life as heaven, as this place, as this good stuff that happens somewhere up there. But we don't know exactly what that is. And because we think of eternal life as a place, because we think of it as heaven, because that's what our concept of heaven is, that it's this place, eternal life is a place, because we think that, What happens is the way Christians have often done evangelism or told people about God and that kind of thing is they've said something like this because we focus on eternal life as a place. We've said something like this. You may have seen some of these tracks which would say, hey, if you died tonight, where would you go? If you died tonight, where would you go? Which is kind of a creepy thing to say somebody, by the way. Don't just walk up to somebody and say, if you died tonight, where do you think you would go? That sounds like a a murderer's pickup line or something. But so... 
this is what we do, because we say it's a place. So there's this gal deciding here, do I want to go to heaven? Do I want to go to hell? If you die tonight, you know, where would you go? Where, where would it be? Do you want to burn forever? No? Oh, well, you should choose heaven. Do you want to cuddle with the devil? No? Oh, well, you should choose heaven. Heaven is great. Look, there's light and gold. Don't you want to choose heaven? And that's what we have done. Hey, if you die tonight, where is it that you would go? Because we view eternal life as a place. When we think of eternal life, we think of heaven. We think of a place. But that's not what the Bible says. You see, the Bible, when it talks about heaven, when the Bible talks about heaven, or rather, sorry, when the Bible talks about eternal life, it has an entirely different concept of what eternal life is. So one of the most popular verses in the Bible that talks about eternal life, you may have heard this verse, is John 3.16. And John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. So the translation when we hear that is, God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus, and if you just believe that he exists and you won't go to hell, you'll go to heaven. But that's not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about eternal life. Later in that same book of John, which is written by the same guy that wrote this letter that we're reading, what happens in that book is he talks about eternal life all the time. And Jesus in that book talks about eternal life all the time. But when the last time he tells us actually what eternal life is, eternal life is knowing Jesus. It's life in relationship with Jesus that begins now and then goes forever. So we often think about eternal life as this place, but the Bible says eternal life is a person. We focus on eternal life as a place, but the Bible says eternal life is relationship with Jesus forever. So that can begin now, but then it goes on forever. That is what the Bible says that eternal life is. See, Jesus did not come so that you would go to heaven. Jesus didn't come to the world so that you would go to heaven That's not why Jesus came to the earth. He didn't come to to take people to heaven. He didn't come so that people would choose the right path and not not the path that leads to hell. Jesus didn't come to take people to heaven. And see, no one ever became a Christian because they didn't want to go to hell. The requirement to become a Christian is not that you don't want to go to hell. And maybe you go, well, wait a minute, that's not true. Because when I was a kid, I heard about hell and I saw it in a movie or something and it was really scary and, and so my mom prayed with me and, and I, you know, I became a Christian. Well, no, you didn't. Becoming a Christian is not, the only requirement to become a Christian is not somebody that doesn't want to go to hell. Everyone would be a Christian. No one wants to go to hell. Everyone wants to go to heaven. That has nothing to do with what the Bible says. And yet we've taught people that many times. And that's often even how we, how we tell people to become a Christian is, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? I mean, who wants to go to hell? But what the Bible says is that eternal life is a relationship with Jesus forever. And that begins here in this life, but it goes on into eternity. That's what the Bible teaches that eternal life is. And see, often, I mean, well, let me say this. I mean, think, think about this idea. When people think that they become a Christian because they don't want to go to hell or because they want to go to heaven, that's kind of like saying, hey, the reason that I got married to, to my wife is because I didn't like any of the other women. Like, hey, will you marry me? Yes, but first, just tell me what it is that you love about me. Well, it's really, I just don't like any of them, and so I want to be with you. I mean, that's kind of what we do with the heaven-hell thing. It's like, do you want to go to hell? 
No. Okay, well then come be a Christian. I mean, that's not what the Bible teaches, though. The Bible teaches something entirely different. The Bible teaches eternal life is life in relationship with Jesus forever, which let me tell you something that people often think. People often think, I don't understand how God would send people to hell that are earnestly spiritual seekers. Or I don't understand how God would send people to hell just because they chose the wrong church or because they didn't believe. I don't understand how God would do that. But the Bible says that heaven and eternal life are life with Jesus forever. And no one is earnestly seeking life with Jesus forever that then doesn't get it. I mean, the only people who are in hell are people that are not seeking life with Jesus forever. If eternal life equals life with Jesus forever that begins now, there's not anyone earnestly seeking that that doesn't receive that. The only people in hell are people that have said they don't want to have life with Jesus forever. It's a very different idea than just someone that would choose hell over heaven. And here's what happens. If you believe that eternal life equals heaven, if that's what your concept of eternal life is, that eternal life is heaven, here's some things that will begin to happen in your life. The first thing is this. You'll work hard now to earn that, but you'll always be uncertain. If you view eternal life and the meaning of eternal life is you can get to heaven then you'll always be working in this life to earn that, but you'll always be uncertain. Have I done enough things? Do I have the right to go back to the plane? Do I have the right boarding pass? Do I have the right luggage? Do I, did I get the right uh, stuff in order? Do I have my carry-on the right size? I mean, you'll, you'll always be wondering if you got your life the right way, and you'll never be quite sure if, if you view eternal life as heaven, a place that you get to. Also, you'll work hard now to get it here in this life. Whatever your view of heaven is, if that's what's ultimate to you, if you believe that eternal life is heaven, then whatever your picture of heaven is, is what you're going to try to bring into this life. I mean, think about it this way. What's your dream vacation? Whatever your dream vacation is, maybe it's paradise on the beach, maybe it's exploring Europe and going to all sorts of cool different places and new museums and new things, or maybe it's just doing nothing. Maybe that's your dream vacation. Just, I want a week to do nothing. Whatever your dream vacation is, you're going to want to bring slivers of that into your weekend and into your life, right? So if your dream vacation is the beach, then maybe you just want to sit outside in the sun on the weekend. Or if your dream vacation is exploring Europe and new places like that, then maybe you want to bring slices of that into your weekend to explore new restaurants and go to new places. Or if your dream vacation is adventure and just filled with all sorts of exploration, then you want to, whatever the ultimate is, You want to bring slices of that into your life now. And see, if we view eternal life, ultimate, as heaven, then whatever our view of heaven is, that's what we're going to want to bring into our life now. So let me explain this. When you think of heaven, what most easily comes to your mind? Is it family and friends? Like, man, when I get to heaven, I'll be with family and friends. That'll be great. Well, then what will happen here in this life is you'll view that as ultimate, and that'll become more important to you than it should be. I'm not saying family's not important, but it'll become excessively important to you, such that it will rule your life. Or if your view of heaven, what initially comes to your mind is, ah, finally, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more death, then what happens in this life, if that's ultimate to you, is you're going to avoid all pain and suffering at all costs. That anytime there's pain in your life, anytime there's suffering in your life, you're going to be, oh my gosh, what's going on? God, are, are you here? Are you real? Do you not love me? Do you not care? Because that's ultimate to you. 
If pain and suffering and sickness being gone is what immediately comes to your mind of heaven, then you're going to want to pursue comfort in this life to an excessive degree. Or maybe it's, man, in heaven, finally, there won't be any evil people. There won't be evil around me. So then in this life, anyone that does evil towards you, anyone that is not good towards you or people that are sinful, you're going to want to avoid them and stay away from them because the ultimate will come down into your life now in slivers if that's what you view eternal life as. Or likewise, even in your own life, if, if when you think of heaven, of what most comes to your mind, of what most excites you is, I won't sin anymore. I'll finally be perfected. I'll finally be good. Then in this life, you're going to be excessively moralistic and religious, and, and you're going to have a, a demeanor about you that is self-righteous. See, all these different things of what we view heaven as Maybe it's, maybe it's this, maybe it's the streets of gold and the mansions. So then in this life, you're going to be concerned about success and about comfort and about pleasure and about riches. I remember there was even a, a Christian song a while ago. The song was all about heaven. Every, the whole song was about heaven. And they sang, there's a big, big house, and there's lots and lots of rooms, and we can play football, and there's foosball, and there's a big yard, and there's not one mention of Jesus. This entire song about heaven, it's a so great place with football and foosball. And, and if that's what your picture of heaven is, is something that brings entertainment and pleasure and, and wide open spaces and all this stuff, then you're going to want to bring slices of that down into this life. Also, what happens if you view eternal life as heaven is your relationship with God becomes about the future. Because you view heaven as a place that God lives. So, okay, God lives in heaven. So once I get to heaven, then him and I can talk and maybe we can have a relationship, but you, it's future oriented and you don't actually have a relationship with him here and now. You think of, okay, if eternal life is heaven and that's where God lives, then one day I'll be able to meet him and talk with him and hang out with him, but, but there's no real relationship now. Or likewise, your, the way that you relate to God becomes just about learning. See, if you view heaven as a place where God is, then the only thing you can really do about God now is kind of check out his profile page and read his resume and kind of get to just study him, but not actually experience him if you think that eternal life is heaven. And finally, if you think that eternal life is heaven, you will want happiness from God, but not actually God himself. Because what you will view is ultimate. The ultimate reality to you, eternal life to you, is this reward as a place. So here's what you get. You get a place instead of you get a person. Then what you will in this life want, the way it will affect this life, is you will want things from God. You will want happiness from God, but not happiness in God. Let me read you a quote from, um, or section rather, from C.S. Lewis in his book. I don't know if you've read this book. It's called The Great Divorce, and it's kind of a parable on hell. And it's C.S. Lewis's kind of take on um, not, not a theological treatise on what hell is going to be like, but just a parable where there's these people that are not in heaven and they're not necessarily quite in hell. They're kind of on the outskirts and they're interested possibly in getting into heaven and he kind of goes through different characters and what's keeping them from entering into heaven. And these people are called ghosts because they're just kind of see-through and flimsy and the people in heaven are thick because they're just real people. So here's, here's the beginning of this conversation with a woman named Pam, and she wants to see her son, and her son Michael's in heaven. 
Her son Michael is in heaven and she wants to see him. She's standing outside and she's talking to this spirit about her son. And here's what she says. Well, when am I going to be allowed to see him? There's no question of being allowed, Pam. As soon as it's possible for him to see you, of course he will. But you need to be thickened up a bit. How, said the ghost. I'm afraid the first step is a hard one, said the spirit. But after that, you'll go on like a house on fire. You will be solid enough for Michael to perceive you when you learn to want someone else besides Michael. I don't say more than Michael, not as a beginning. That will come later. It's only the little germ of a desire for God that we need to start the process. Oh, you mean religion and all that sort of thing. This is hardly the moment. And from you of all people, well, never mind. I'll do whatever's necessary. What do you want me to do? Come on. The sooner I begin it, the sooner they'll let me see my boy. I'm quite ready. But Pam, do think. Don't you see you are not beginning at all as long as you are in that state of mind? You're treating God only as a means to Michael. But the whole thickening treatment consists in learning to want God for his own sake. See, she wants to get into heaven because she wants something from God. She wants her son. She wants to see her son. That's what she wants. And if your view of eternal life is heaven, then you always want things from God, but not God himself. You'll want happiness from God, but not God himself. See, when you think about heaven, when you think about heaven, what do you think about? Your family, your friends, no sickness, fun, streets of gold. All these things often fill our minds, but not Jesus But the Bible says that eternal life is a relationship with Jesus forever. So we get that here and now. We get that here and now, but it goes on forever. So the meaning of eternal life is a relationship with Jesus forever. That's what eternal life is. It's a person, not a place. So you can have it now, not just later. So how do we we get eternal life? What's, What's the way to eternal life? What's the way to eternal life? Well, what John says is that anyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ or anyone that believes that Jesus is the Son of God, he says it a couple different ways, anyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ gets eternal life. Whoever has the Son has life, he says. And that makes sense. I mean, if if eternal life is life with Jesus forever, then it makes sense that the way to get that is you believe in Jesus, But we have to offer up a couple clarifications because what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It's a very misunderstood idea. So first, there's two clarifications. The first one is this. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Who's Jesus? Because John throughout this letter is constantly, constantly, over and over again, combating false ideas of Jesus. Do you know that almost every major religion has some form of Jesus? He's a prophet. He's a spiritually enlightened person or being. He's a teacher. He's a good guy. He showed the way to God. Whatever it might be, almost every major religion has some version of Jesus. But John is continually saying there's one Jesus. There's a true Jesus. It's not just any random version of Jesus that you want to to form into your own liking. There is a Jesus as the Bible presents him. And here's what he says. He says, this is he who came by the water and the blood. So he's talking about Jesus and he says, this is the the Jesus I'm talking about is the one that came by the water 
and the blood. Now, what does that mean? I have no idea. No, I mean, I, I don't know 100%, okay? And this is one of the most argued verses in the Bible of what that actually means, the, particularly around the water idea. Some people say it has to do with the fact that Jesus was baptized, which began his public ministry. Some people say it has to do that Jesus had a ministry of baptizing other people, both physically in water and also spiritually. Some people say it has to do with the fact that he was born or when a spear was stuck in his side and water and blood came out. There's different ideas about this. But let me, let me just, let me point this out. What's interesting is that John says, this is he who came by water and blood. Not just the water, but water and blood, he emphasizes. That everybody agreed on the water, whatever that was, but not the blood. So what I think the water means from my study, and I don't know, I don't, I'm not going to stand by this um, with a gun to my head, but here's what I think it means. I think it has to do with the fact that Jesus had a ministry of baptizing people, that that was very important to Jesus' ministry. He baptized other people, bringing them into the family of God, and he didn't just baptize in water, he baptized also spiritually. But here's what people debated. Everyone's like, fine, okay, the water, yes, but not the blood, and isn't that true today? Isn't the peace that people still have an offense to is the blood? It's not the life of Jesus, it's the blood. So people often will say, man, Jesus was a great teacher. But, John says, he didn't just come by teaching. He came by teaching and the blood. If you want to insert whatever you want into that first category. Well, Jesus hung out with all the marginalized people and he hung out with the outcast of society and the poor people. Yes, but he didn't just come hanging out with poor people. It was that and the blood. Or, but Jesus was very spiritually enlightened and he had great insights about God. Yes, and he came spiritually enlightened and the blood. And over and over again, people have different ideas about Jesus and they want to have all these ideas about Jesus, but without the blood. The blood is the part that's the offense to people because the blood is the part that's offensive because it, it's something about us. So here's what the idea of the blood is. The idea of the blood has to do with Jesus' cross. That's what we celebrate when we do communion as well, which we'll do later. But here's, here's what happens. that The Bible teaches that we are sinful people which doesn't just mean that we murder and kill and, and steal and cheat. It doesn't just mean that. It means that we value other things instead of God, that we build our lives on other things instead of God. Even if you're an atheist, there's a very good person. You would still say, you would admit, aren't you building your life on something else instead of God? Well, that's what the Bible talks about sin as, that we build our lives on other things instead of God, that we value other things instead of God, that we love other things instead of God. That when we think about heaven, even, we don't think about God We think about all the blessings it will give to us and all the things it will bring to us. That's what the Bible says sin is. And that the punishment for sin then is death. That because we sin against a good God that made us, that created us, that the punishment we deserve is death. A horrible death. A bloody death. In both the physical sense and the British sense. A bloody death. That's what we deserve. But... Instead, Jesus comes down from heaven. He's both God and man, and he pays that penalty himself. So while we should have been crucified on a cross for our sin against God, our rejection, ignoring, dismissing of God, while we should pay that price, our price should be death. 
It should be life apart from Jesus forever. Life apart from God forever. Instead, Jesus goes to the cross and he sheds his blood in our place for our sin. He lives the life that we should have lived and dies the death that we should die. That's the blood. And that's the part that people have an offense to. The water part's great. The teaching part's great. The, the healing stuff is great. The miracles are great. All of it's great. But the blood, ah, that seems so offensive. Yes, because it shows us where our hearts really are. And unless the Holy Spirit enlightens your eyes to see that, your heart is hardened. So, to believe in Jesus means that Jesus. It means Jesus, the Christ, the Savior. And he also says that the water and the blood testify. They speak the truth of this, as well as the Holy Spirit within you. That if you're a Christian, he says, you have the testimony in yourself that the Holy Spirit shows you, this is true, this is what Jesus did for you. There's a subjective reality that testifies to the fact that Jesus didn't just do this, but he did this for you. And the testimony is within yourself that that's what Jesus did. If you're a Christian, you you feel that, you sense that. So here's the second clarification. First is who the Jesus is that we are to believe in. How do we get eternal life? It's to believe in Jesus. That's who Jesus is. Now, what does believe mean? What does believe mean? Because what it doesn't mean is believe in facts. It doesn't mean I believe in Jesus is I believe in certain facts about Jesus. It's not the same thing as saying, I believe in George Washington. I believe he existed. I believe he was a part of the Revolutionary War. I believe that he was the first president. I believe he had a curly wig. I believe in George Washington, right? That's not the same thing as believing facts. All over the Bible, it has this language of believe in Jesus. But there's always corrections throughout the Bible that that doesn't just mean believe in facts. It doesn't mean believe in the facts that Jesus existed or believe in the facts that he did certain things. It doesn't mean that. That's why in the Bible it says, Even demons believe in God. Who cares if you believe in God? Who cares if you believe Jesus existed? So do demons. Who cares if you believe Jesus died on the cross? So do demons. So what does that mean? What does it mean then to believe in Jesus? Because I know some of you are from the South, and I go to the South frequently on some trips, and everybody in the South believes in Jesus. But what does that mean, to believe in Jesus, the way the Bible talks about it? What does that mean? Well, I'll read from Jesus' own words, but let me give you a hint. What it means is more when a coach looks at a player and says, I believe in you. Now, what does that mean when they say that? That doesn't mean, I believe that you are physically standing in front of me. Thanks, coach. I mean, that, that doesn't mean that. It means, I have a confidence in you. I have a trust in you. I have a hope in you, right? When a coach looks at a player and says, I believe in you, or when a, when a physical trainer looks at somebody that they're training in CrossFit or in other gyms, you, they look at you and say, I believe in you. That's a confidence, a trust, a hope. So let's look at Jesus' own words of what that means in a passage closely parallel to this. And I'll put this on the screen here. Here's what Jesus says. Okay, now let me, let me set this up. This is right after Jesus does a miracle. And he feeds thousands of people with just a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. And he feeds thousands of people. And then he leaves. Okay, He he travels away. and, And here's what happens. When they found him, this is the crowd that saw him do this miracle. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, that just means teacher, Rabbi, when did you come here? 
And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So what he says is, look, the reason that you followed me here, the reason you're stalking me here is not because you saw signs, which doesn't just mean magic. It means a sign, just like a street sign. It points to a destination. It's not because you saw signs that pointed to the fact that I am who I said I am. I'm the Christ. I'm the son of God. That's not why you're following me. You're following me because I gave you food. You're just following me because you want more food. You just want another sandwich. That's, that's it. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, not because you actually believe in me, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man frequently. And he says, do not work for the food that perishes, Don't just come after me for the things that I will give you, for homes, for houses, for food, for you're coming after me just because you want things from me. You're coming after me because you want things from me. You want different things in your life to go certain ways. You want certain gifts from me. You want certain blessings from me. Don't just come after me because you want things from me. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. And I'll give this to you. For on him, he's talking about himself, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So Jesus says, look, don't work for the food that's going to fade away, all the things you want from me. Instead, work for the food that comes from God. What, was, what must we do to work for God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So he says, here's what God wants from you. He wants you to believe in me. He wants you to believe in me. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? So Jesus says, I want you to believe in me, which doesn't mean I want you to physically see that I exist or believe that I'm here. It's certain things about him, of who he is, a trust, a confidence. And they say, look, well, You know, you need to do a sign for us, which Jesus already just got done doing a miracle for them. And they say, what are you going to do? What will you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And here's what these guys are talking about. In the Old Testament, if you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments or that kind of thing, when the Israelites leave Egypt, okay, and they're in the wilderness and they're hungry, they've got nothing to eat. And God sends down manna, which is these big, thick pieces of honey, sweet bread, probably gluten-free for some people and, and not for some others, for the lucky ones. And, it, and it's tasty, delicious bread. And that's what manna is. And so what they say to him is, look, a sign that was done for our forefathers, our ancestors, was that God gave them bread from heaven. What are you going to do? And Jesus says to them this, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, so Jesus says, this is what the real bread is. That was just an image. That was just a shadow. The true bread from heaven, the bread of God, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And they're still just thinking about food. They're not getting it. Jesus says, there's a bread that comes down from heaven. He's talking about himself. The true bread is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, gives eternal life to the world. And they go, okay, sweet. I like that bread. That sounds tasty. 
And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst, right? This is the believe word. Whoever comes to me shall never be hungry. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Aren't there people that have seen Jesus? Don't believe like this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So here's what Jesus says. To believe in him is to come to him with hunger and thirst. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, true bread. Think about bread. What does it do for you? Well, if you're starving, it keeps you alive. It it satisfies you. It tastes good. It it nourishes you. It keeps you moving. It keeps you going. Or, Or think about water. Jesus says, anyone that comes to me thirsty, I'm the water that will give him life. What does that mean? He's saying to believe in him means to come to him the same way you come to an ice cold glass of water on a hot sunny day when you're dehydrated. That it tastes good and it fills you and it satisfies you. That to believe in Jesus doesn't just mean to believe facts about Jesus. It means to come to him hungry, to come to him thirsty, that he would satisfy you. See, really we can take believe and and replace it with delight or treasure. It's easy to say you believe in Jesus. Do you delight in Jesus? Do you treasure Jesus? Are you satisfied in Jesus? Do you view Jesus the way you view an amazing meal or an ice cold glass of water? That he brings you satisfaction That all the longings in your heart find satisfaction in him. That all the desires in your heart find satisfaction in him. That's what Jesus says. Anyone that comes to me hungry and comes to me thirsty, they find eternal life. That's what it means to have eternal life, is to come to Jesus, not just believe facts about him, but to be satisfied in him, to find him as your greatest treasure, to find him as your greatest treasure, Treasure. Are you cultivating that in your life? Are you cultivating that in your life? Do you have things in your life that help you to cultivate a satisfaction in Christ? Or are you content to just say, oh, I believe in Jesus. Believe some facts about him. But are you experiencing the eternal life that's found in him now? Are you experiencing that in him now? Because that's what he wants. He wants us to come to him hungry. He wants us to come to him thirsty and to find our satisfaction in him. Not in just what he will give us, but in him. So, that is the way to eternal life. It's to believe in Jesus. The meaning of eternal life is life with Jesus forever that begins now and goes on. The way to eternal life is to believe in Jesus, to delight in Jesus, to treasure Jesus. And here's the power of eternal life. Here's what happens. Here's what actually happens in your life now 
when you believe in Jesus, treasure Jesus, delight in Jesus. Here's what happens. In the very beginning part of chapter 5 that we read, here's what he says happens. That those that believe, so the treasure, that delight in, that come satisfied, that find their hunger and their thirst satisfied in him, here's what happens. You're born of God. You're born of God. Now that's an amazing idea. That you're born, see, to be a Christian is not just that you believe certain things about God. It's not just that you follow Jesus' teachings. It's that you have a new nature inside of you. That you're born spiritually new. That's a very different concept of spirituality than most people have. That most people even would say that to, be, to become a spiritual person, we do certain things, then we kind of reach a spiritual enlightenment. Or we do certain things, then we can get to heaven. Or we do certain things. But this, what John says is if you believe, if you're satisfied in Jesus, if you come to him, you're born of God now. That you actually get a new existence. You're a new creation. A new, a new heart, a new nature, the Bible teaches. So even for some of you, and I was talking with uh, some of you this week about this, that even for some of you that maybe there's certain things in your life where you go, you know, it's just not in my nature to be a loving person. It's just not in my nature. And I've even said this before. It's not in my nature to be a patient person. It's not in my nature to be a kind or gentle person. That's just not in my nature. And I got to work really hard at those things. The Bible says, no way. The Bible says, actually, that you are born of God and you have a new nature now. Which means the times that you are acting impatiently or bitterly or unlovingly, the times you're doing that isn't because you're operating out of your nature. It's because you're actually actively resisting the nature that you have, the new nature you have. God has given you a new nature if you're a Christian, that you've been born of God. And so when you do things, when you sin or when you are uh, going against ways that you think are just natural to you, no, no. You're actually going against, actively resisting who God's made you to be. You're not just passively operating status quo. You're actively resisting that the Holy Spirit in you is continually pushing you out to follow Jesus, to love Jesus, to live like Jesus, to to receive his love for you. All of that is natural to you now if you're a Christian. And if you don't experience that, it's because you're actually actively resisting that. You have a new nature. You're born of God, which is why... Because there's a new spiritual reality that happens to you, you should never, ever say, I've always been a Christian. No one has always been a Christian. Because to become a Christian is to have something happen to you. You're born of God. God does something to you. The Bible, the doctrine of this is called regeneration. Something happens to your heart. You might not know the exact moment in time that happens, but God does something spiritually to your heart. Or you're born of God. So, the power of eternal life is that you're born of God. And then what John says in that beginning part of the letter is that if that happens, you can overcome the world. That if you treasure Jesus, if you delight in Jesus, if you're satisfied in Jesus, you overcome the world. Now let me tell you what that means. Because we talked, John mentioned the world earlier, what that is. The world is that there's powers in this world keeping us from loving God, keeping us from loving one another, keeping us from obeying God's commands, that there's powers in the world continually drawing us away from those things. 
that John called it the lust of the eyes. So the things we see that we desire, the lusts of the flesh, the things that feel good to us, that we crave and we want, or the pride of life, that which we have, that we feel good about, that we have arrogance about, feeling good about ourselves, feeling like we are gods, that we are the top of the world, all of those things. It's, it's the things that we don't have that we desire and crave for and the things that we do have or the, or the person that we are that we take pride in, that we're proud about and arrogant about, that that's what the world is. And this affects every part of life. It affects your aspirations and your desires and your goals. It affects your purchases that you make. It affects your job choices, your friend choices. It affects affects your spiritual life. We can come into this mentality even on a Sunday or even in a church community where we come in with the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. What can I get? What will make me look good? What do I want? What can people give to me? How can people serve me? How can people benefit me? Things I don't have that I want. Ways I want to look good and I want people to see that. It can affect our prayers that when we pray to God, we're asking him, give me this and give me that and give me this and do this and do that and do this. And God's kind of our little gopher that goes and gets all the different things for us. That affects everything. I mean, think about this. Every single year, people die on Black Friday. Every single year. There's a website, I don't know if it just came out this year, it's the first year I heard about it, but that tallied the deaths and injuries on Black Friday. So people have the desires of the eyes. I want that electronic, I want that toy. And the powers of the world draw them to trample on other people to get that, to kill other people to get that, to go against the love for God and the love for people and to disobey God's commands, to go get what it is they want to trample on others. And I know you probably think that's disgusting. That's horrible. I would never do that. Okay, maybe not. I hope not. But whether you externally do that or not, that's the same thing internally that happens on our hearts. Do we not trample on other people with our words? Do we not trample on other people with our attitudes? Do we not trample on other people even sometimes in our careers to get to where we want? Do we not trample on other people all the time? Do we not just sometimes have an attitude of, I want to be served, and I want what I want, and I'll use other people to do that? That's the powers of the world. So how do we overcome that? John says we overcome that. We overcome this by faith, by belief in Jesus Christ, by believing who he is, which is to say, treasuring him for who he is, delighting in him for who he is. Because that breaks the power. That breaks the, the reason that you overcome the world through a faith in Jesus Christ is because you're already full. You're already full now. You've already been satisfied. You've already come to him. You're no longer craving the things of the world. You no longer have the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. You no longer have those things because you're already satisfied in Jesus. You're already satisfied in him. And here's what John says. He says that, Those that believe that Jesus is the Son of God, his commands are not burdensome. So if if you have faith in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, satisfied in him, if you're satisfied in him, if you delight in him, then his commands are not burdensome. And you might look at that and go, "Um, I don't know what world he's living in, because sometimes his commands feel burdensome to me. 
I mean, sometimes even for people that are not Christians in this room, if you're on a spiritual journey and you're, you're interested or exploring this idea, maybe one of the things even keeping you from God is, ah, this command seemed kind of burdensome to me. If you're a Christian, you may have felt this. Okay, God, I'll do what you say. I'll follow you, but that's a weight. It's a heavy responsibility. It's a burden that we feel that sometimes. But why does John say the commands are not burdensome? I mean, where is it right now for you that you're struggling to obey God? Everybody, I would assume and presume, has some area in their life. Where is it that you're struggling to obey God? Where is it that you look at what God's calling you to do as a burden? Where is it that you look at what God's calling you to be that is a burden to you, that feels weighty to you, that feels difficult to you, that feels hard to you? The areas of overcoming the world, of loving people, of loving God, of obeying his commands, where is it that that feels like a burden to you? Those are the areas that you're not delighting in Jesus because if you find your satisfaction in him, then the commands are no longer burdensome. Let me tell you what happened to me this week. So this week, as I'm studying for this, and God often does this as I'm preparing for a sermon, so I'm, I was talking to some of you this week about the fact that we have a new nature inside of us and that we're born of God and that the Holy Spirit is always in us, pushing us out to respond to that nature. And so I'm on the phone with my wife, okay? And uh, I was a little mean to her on the phone. And I don't mean like I called her names or anything like that. It was more subtle. It was more an attitude, just an attitude of meanness. So it was easy to kind of sweep away because it wasn't like I actually called her a name or raised my voice or it was nothing like that. So it kind of could just be swept under the rug if I wanted to. Um, And I had just kind of a bad attitude towards her on the phone. And hung up the phone and then immediately... I felt my initial instinct, because I'm born of God, because I have a new nature, this is true of you if you're a Christian, my initial instinct was, I need to call her back and ask for forgiveness. But then I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I'm trying to suppress that. But then I was like, remember you were just talking about how you have a new nature and we resist that? And I literally out loud said, oh, God, come on. Like, duh, why are you doing this to me? Because I didn't want to do this. It felt like a burden to me. But I picked up the phone because I already just told someone else to do this. So I picked up the phone and it felt like a burden. And I called her and said, hey, I just want to you know, say I'm sorry I was mean to you. Will you forgive me? And she said yes and hung up the phone. I was like, wow, that, that was good. That felt good. And I looked down at the Bible because I was working on a sermon during this time. And I looked down at the Bible. Look how holy I am. And I looked down at the Bible and it because I was studying this, it said his commands are not burdensome. And I just laughed because I felt like this was such a burden to, to, to call her and ask for forgiveness. And, to, and why? Because I was concerned with one of the things John says is part of the world, the pride of life, my pride. I didn't want to do that. My pride. I wasn't satisfied in Jesus. I wasn't delighting in Jesus. I wasn't full with a satisfaction in Christ in that moment. And so the command felt burdensome because of that. But even after it was done, it was like, man, that was actually good. That was sweet. That was joyful. God is right that his commands are not burdensome when we're satisfied in him. I didn't believe that in that moment. I want to read you this quote. There's a man named David Livingstone. David Livingstone is one of the most famous missionaries in the 1800s. 
And he went to Africa, spent most of his life in Africa as a missionary. Now look, nowadays, everyone wants to be a missionary in Africa. Every church in the country does a mission trip to Africa. Some of you have probably been to Africa. Africa is the sexy place to be for a missionary now. Everyone wants to go there, okay? That wasn't true back then. There was still cannibalism. It was still a very dangerous place to be. This would be like now saying, hey, who wants to go on a mission trip to North Korea where they kill people for owning a Bible? Who wants to go on a mission trip to Iran? That's what it's more like. David Livingstone spent most of his life in Africa. And here's what he said. For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say, rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then, with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. And imagine the power that would be unleashed in your life if you were fully satisfied in Christ. It doesn't matter about anxieties or sicknesses or dangers. Imagine the power that would be unleashed in your life if all that God commands of you to do, to love him, to love others, all that he says wouldn't be a burden to you, wouldn't be seen as a sacrifice to you. But because you're fully satisfied in him, imagine what would happen in your life. Imagine what would happen on small scales. There wouldn't be fights over the phone. There wouldn't be a refusal to ask for forgiveness. There wouldn't be bitterness. There wouldn't be impatience. There wouldn't, I mean, imagine the power that would be unleashed in your life if you lived like that. If you were satisfied in Christ in that way. Imagine what would happen. Imagine in your life what would happen if you so fully delighted in Christ because you see his love for you in the blood, the water and the blood, you see his love for you and his grace for you that, that he made you his treasure, that you then treasure him with a view of eternal life, not as some heaven that you go to, but as a person that you get. This is why the Apostle Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I once had an English teacher correct my grammar in a paper when I quoted that. And I put, to live is Christ. And she's like, that doesn't make any sense. To live is Christ. Well, let me explain that to you, actually. To live is Christ. It means our whole life, eternal life begins now, that we get to be satisfied in him and delight in him and, and have a full life, a true life because of him. And then to die is gain because you've already begun this relationship and you just get to have it forever. Heaven's not some place. Eternal life is not some place. Eternal life is a person that you get to be in relationship with. And the power of that coming into your life, the power of that that would happen in our church that then would be unleashed in this city, man, imagine that power. 